Chapter 17 Michael's Struggle Early December, Evanston, Illinois A few weeks passed since the demise of Michael's friends and family. The funerals were held a few days after the explosion, and attended by many of Ariana and Michael's friends. Most were work-related associates who paid their respects to Michael as they passed five closed caskets in the Lake Forest funeral home. Since the accident, Michael had not been back to work and was not planning on returning any time soon, despite numerous calls from his boss urging him to come back as quickly as possible. Michael was not ready to face life again, much less the everyday challenges of his job. He wasn't concerned about the money he was losing by not working. The one thing Michael did have was a considerable sum of money— the trust fund he put away for the kids' education was now fully available. The house was insured for the appraised amount of $4.8 million, and the life insurance policies on Ariana and the kids amounted to over $1,300,000. Michael decided he could afford to take a leave of absence from work, a very extended leave of absence. He moved into a small one-bedroom furnished apartment in nearby Evanston, for the last several weeks, he spent most of his day crying, and the other part of it drinking. He seldom left the apartment and had lost a considerable amount of weight. He counted the days until Christmas Eve. He would travel back to the burnt-out site once his home, and wait for Ariana and the kids to arrive. He prayed that God would allow him one more day with his loved ones. Michael contemplated suicide almost continuously since the explosion, but remembered Uncle Wally's statement about how suicides were treated in heaven. He did not want to jeopardize his eternal soul by taking his earthly life at this time. He didn't even know if he would be allowed into heaven after the way he cursed God for what happened to him. He had his doubts. Day after day, Michael wasted away in the small east-side apartment, drinking, crying, and sleeping. Garbage filled the small rooms, for Michael had no incentive to clean up after himself. Empty, half-eaten containers of carry-out food were turning green with mold as they lay on the floor near a couch Michael called his bed. He spent every waking and sleeping hour on this couch, waiting for the time to pass. Empty bottles of whiskey were scattered about the apartment. Michael only left this poor excuse of existence to take a short walk to the nearby liquor store or to pick up the occasional Chinese dinner. As the days passed, Christmas Eve was fast approaching. Michael was convinced that Ariana and the kids would still visit him at 6 p.m. that evening, even though the house was gone. He lost all of his faith in God and was concerned that his punishment was far from over. He continually asked the question, Why? December 24th, Christmas Eve, 148 Festive Lane, 6 p.m. Michael pulled his truck over to the curb in front of the now empty lot where the magical old house once stood. This Christmas was not like that of the snowy holidays of recent years. It was a cold and rainy night that perfectly reflected Michael's dismal mood. Michael stepped out onto the pavement, carrying a half-empty bottle of whiskey. He stumbled and fell several times as he tried to walk through the burnt-out rubble he once called home. 
The black soot, wet from the rain, covered Michael's shoes and clothes with a thick layer of tar-like substance. As he staggered to the still intact foundation, he came upon the edge of the concrete wall that used to hold his family together and took a seat. There was no grandfather clock to chime six times. Like everything else in the home, it too perished in the fire. Michael looked at his soot-covered watch. As he wiped away the filth from the crystal, he could see that it was 5.58. Michael waited for Ariana to arrive. He took several drinks from the whiskey bottle and emptied it. He looked at the bottle in disgust and threw it into what once was the house's basement. It shattered into a thousand pieces. Michael sat alone in the cold, wet night and waited for his family to come to his rescue. The cold wind sent chills through his body that would have been much worse if he had not been so intoxicated. He looked at his watch again. It was now 6.15 p.m. They aren't coming. They all hate me for killing them. I didn't mean it. It was an accident. Please come home. Please, Ariana, he shouted. As he sat, drenched with rain, Water dripped off his head and onto his face. The taste of the water as it cascaded into his mouth was clean and fresh, a pleasant change from the salty taste of tears that found their way to his lips over the last thirty days. Suddenly, Michael heard a noise from behind him. He turned and looked into the darkness and shouted, Ariana, is that you? A response came back to him. She's dead, Carter. They're all dead. Hell, you probably killed them with that stupid furnace you installed. It was all over the news. You and your neighbor Stevens are both just a couple of losers. Who's there? Who is that? Michael asked. The figure walked into the light shining from a nearby lamppost. It's me, Tony Cesario. How you doing, Carter? You don't look so good, buddy. You've been drinking? Yeah. What's it to you? What are you doing here? Michael asked. I came by to make you a little offer, Carter. It seems your dream house went bye-bye, so now that you saved me the trouble of knocking it down myself, I want to buy the property, Tony replied. Michael looked up at Tony and asked, Buy the property, but why? Cause it's worth a lot more to me than it is to you, buddy. Tony pulled an envelope out of his jacket pocket. Here's a contract and a check for $3.4 million. I suggest you take it and get your life back in order. I know you don't need the money, Carter. I checked with the insurance company. I know they already paid you off. Take this check and double your financial worth, because it's the only worth you have right now, pal. Look at you. You look like a bum, dirty and smelly. What a drunken loser. Michael was about to take the envelope from Tony, because he agreed with Tony's assessment of the situation in his mind. He was a loser. He had nothing left. It was now evident that no one was coming back to the house. He might as well let Tony have the property. Before he reached for the envelope from Tony's hand, he asked one last question. And 
What if I don't accept your generous offer, then what, Mr. Cesario? Michael asked. Tony became outraged. You stupid jerk. Look at you sitting here in the rain, drunk and covered in ash. You look like a washed-up bum. Take the damn money and get the hell out of here. But what if I don't want to? shouted back Michael. Tony reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a gun. Well, Carter, I will just take this property the way I should have taken it years ago. No skin off my nose. If I kill you, I'll buy the property from the state of Illinois because you ain't got no one to leave it to. Killing you is probably going to save me a couple of million. I'll make it look like a suicide, said Tony. Michael looked at the gun pointed at him. Go ahead. You'd be doing me a favor. I can't kill myself or I will lose my family forever. But if you kill me, I will be with them again. Carter, you are one crazy nut. See your family? They're all dead. You are one sick, disillusioned loser. Nice doing business with you, loser, Tony said as he cocked the gun and aimed it at Michael's head. From behind Tony, a voice calmly said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mr. Cesario. Tony turned and saw a figure standing in the shadows. Who's there? Come out here and show your face, he yelled as he waved the gun. An older woman wearing a black imitation fur coat stepped into the light. I think you'd better put the gun down, Mr. Cesario, Martha said. Where the hell did you come from, lady? asked Tony. I assure you I have not come from hell, Mr. Cesario. Now put the gun down. Sorry, lady. Your timing isn't too good. See, now after I kill this loser, I will have to kill you as well. You know, dead men tell no tales, he replied. I wouldn't be so sure of that, Mr. Cesario. Put the gun down or you might get hurt, Martha said. Oh, yeah, and I suppose you are going to take away my gun and beat me up, right? <laughs> oh, no, I am much too old to be fighting with someone half my age. But my friend over there might think differently. Martha said as she pointed to Tony's right side. As Tony turned slowly to his right, he found himself face to chest with Jack Stevens. Hello, Tony, Jack said as he grabbed him by the throat and raised him off his feet into the air. Stevens, what the hell? Tony screamed as the gun fell from his hand onto the ground. Jack held Tony in front of him, high into the air with one arm, and punched him in the face with his other fist. Tony flew through the air, landed several feet away, and was knocked entirely unconscious. One punch. I'm very impressed, Jack. Thank you, Martha. I hoped he would have lasted a little longer. I always wanted to beat the crap out of that guy, Jack replied. During this time, Michael remained sitting on the foundation, staring off into space. He hadn't moved an inch and was unfazed by the sequence of events that just transpired. Jack and Martha walked over to Michael and sat next to him. Hey, Mikey, how you doing, buddy? asked Jack. I've been better, Jack. Surprised you aren't beating the hell out of me, too. 
I'm the one that killed you. Now I just feel twice as guilty. Here I kill you and you come back and save my life. Thanks a lot. Michael, you didn't kill anyone. It was an accident, Jack said. Sure it was, but I'm the one that caused it, so I am responsible for killing all of you. That's not true, Michael. Jack is right. It was an accident. Do you remember leaving a note for Ariana about the furnace? Well, Wanda unknowingly blew that note off the thermostat when she opened the front door earlier that day. She turned the furnace on, not knowing it was broken. Then David wished the house to be gone, and flipped the wrong switch by the garage door that turned on the light and set off the explosion. Jack was in the basement when he knew better and should have gotten everyone out of the house immediately. Is it their fault that the house exploded, Michael? Martha asked. No, I guess not. Then it isn't your fault either. Could have, should have, would have, doesn't fix the problem. It was not anyone's fault, Michael. It just happened. But what about God? Didn't he see what was going on? Why didn't he stop it? God works in mysterious ways, Michael. Isn't that what you have always been told? Well, it's true. There is a reason for everything, and everything has its reason. Michael started to weep. Jack pulled him to his shoulder and hugged him tightly. No one came. No one showed up this year, Martha. Why didn't Ariana and the kids come home for Christmas? asked Michael. And Michael, there was no house to come back to. Remember that we are human beings when we visit you at this time each year. We need shelter and warmth, just like any other human being. There needs to be a house standing here to visit, not a hole in the ground. Unfortunately, we all visited a hole in the ground, and let me tell you, it isn't pleasant, she said. Also, that last rule I didn't mention that very first Christmas was about the time constraints that are put upon the immediate family that passes away. It's too hard to deal with seeing the ones closest to you so soon after they have passed on. One whole year must pass before deceased immediate family members are allowed to revisit the house. When my father and mother died, I wanted to see them so very much the first Christmas after their deaths. But I was required to wait until the following Christmas. It's a grieving period, Michael. It's necessary. So, what do I have to do to see you all again? asked Michael. You must do two things. First, you have to regain your faith in love, life, and God. Then, you must rebuild the house on the existing foundation. The foundation is still intact and should hold a new house without any problem. The foundation is the heart of the house, Michael. It allowed Jack and me to come back this evening for this short visit. You need to build a house on the existing foundation, Michael. If you can do these two things, your family will be here with you next Christmas, I promise. 
Martha said. She's telling the truth, Michael. But there's more, Jack said. What do you mean more? You have to give up the booze and get your life back together, Mike. You can't build this house if you're always drunk and feeling sorry for yourself. The accident wasn't your fault. Get over it. It's time to move on and get going on building a new house. You only have a year, Jack said. Michael smiled for the first time in thirty days. I will give it my best shot. We're counting on you, Michael. Get down to business, okay? Jack said. Okay, Jack. I promise I will be ready by next year. Jack and Martha stood up and helped Michael to his feet. They walked him back over to his truck, and Jack asked Michael if he was sober enough to drive. Michael nodded his head and truly was sober. We have to go now, Michael, but we will see you next year. Don't give up on yourself. Keep working at it. A new house without faith is just a new house. Both are required to make your dreams come true. We all love you, Michael. Michael hugged Martha. I will miss you both. See you next year. Oh, and Jack? Yes, Michael. Thanks for saving my life. Jack just smiled and watched as Michael got into his truck and drove away. Jack and Martha walked off into the darkness. Those were some surprise conditions you threw in there, Jack. Stopping drinking was not part of the deal, only rebuilding the house and restoring his faith. I know, but hey, he needs to be sober to do it. I figured I would go for it, Jack replied as they continued to walk. As their outlines vanished into the darkness, a faint conversation could be heard and Jack's apparent response, but I didn't hit him that hard. As the rain turned to light snow, the Christmas lights glowed from the neighboring homes in the area. Carolers could be heard singing, O come, all ye faithful, in the distance. Still lying in the rubble, Tony Cesario slowly awakened and moaned with pain. He picked himself up off the water-soaked ground, retrieved his gun, and slowly walked to his car. A light flashed into his eyes as he wiped the blood from his split lip and soot from his clothes. A voice shouted, Drop the gun and put your hands over your head now. Tony dropped the handgun and raised his hands. The police officer that shouted the demands approached Tony and handcuffed his hands behind his back. We had reports of a man with a gun in this area. You are under arrest for displaying a handgun in public. Do you have a permit for that gun? No, I don't, Tony answered softly. The officer pushed Tony into the back of the squad car and shut the door. The patrol car drove out of sight as the blue flashing lights faded into the darkness of the night. A star shined brightly to the north, and calm finally settled onto this Christmas Eve. <laughs>